I want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, it, it's great to have this many people interested in the panel, um, especially one week before what I think is a pretty consequential election coming up, uh, and perhaps you know a talk about uh, the Islamic State, maybe a respite from all the sort of news that keeps coming at us on on every, on every single on an hourly basis about what's actually going on in our own political system, uh, and we hope you enjoy uh, uh, the talk today. Uh, I want to first introduce uh, our panelists before I begin to, to give a lay of the land and si signpost our conversation today. Um, sitting to my immediate left, your right, is Hassan Hassan. Um, he's a resident, a resident at the Tahrir Institute and the co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of, of Terror. Uh, and, next, and next to Hassan on the left is uh, uh, Jessica McFay-Lewis. Uh, Louis McFaith, excuse me, who is the Director of Tradecraft Innovation uh, at the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, and also, uh, to, to, to the, on the far left, the far end of the panel, is Howard Schatz. He's a senior economist at the RAND Corporation, whose latest uh, ISIS-related publication uh, is called uh, Foundations of the Islamic State. Uh, and we're going to, rather than have sort of set prepared speeches today, we're going to have this more of a discussion format um, about current related events related to the Islamic State, uh, but also building upon that a lot of the history, its foundations, uh, where it came from, and then what we can learn from that for perhaps future policy options for the next American administration as we come on after the election. So I think it's, it's, it's actually best to start with uh, both Hassan and Jessica as we look forward, uh, as we start here. Obviously, in the news, we have the battle for Mosul going on. Uh, it began, I believe, about two weeks ago. Um, and I, to, for me personally, it's going faster than I thought. It seems to be going pretty well. But I am not uh, an expert on sort of these type of topics. So I'd like to start with you. I mean, how would you judge the, 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 the current battle? And what do you think it portends about the current war against the Islamic State? Well, I think this is, uh, you know, Iraq is recognized this is the most important uh, offensive against, uh, not only against the Islamic State, but an offensive, uh, you know, conducted by Iraqi, uh, by, by Iraqis. Uh, President, uh, President Barzani, for example, described, uh, he told Iraqi officials in, in Baghdad that this is the first time that Iraqis and the Kurds, uh, Kurdish Peshmerga, fighting on the same side uh, for probably uh, 60 years. Uh, so it's it's a uh, it's a very important uh, offensive, and it's uh, I think uh, so far it's been going very imp impressively, very well. Uh, it's going certainly on schedule. This is the second day uh, Iraqi forces are inside uh, Mosul, uh, they are the outskirts of Mosul. Uh, I think so far it's going it's going very well. Uh, the composition of the forces that are supposed to go inside uh, Mosul. Uh, are the right forces. They are professional Iraqi forces, the counterterrorism uh, force, and the federal police with tribal uh, uh, fighters from uh, Nainawa and uh, you know, Sunni, Sunni fighters. So I think uh, so far there's a cause for optimism. Uh, there are problems we can discuss uh, when we, uh, you know, uh, in the conversation later on. There are fault lines, there are problems that uh, are starting to appear and emerge. Uh, in, the, in the first uh, few weeks. This is the third week of the campaign. Certainly. Well, I'd just like to echo first that the coalition that is attacking ISIS in Mosul is impressive. ISIS is expert at trying to exploit seams among enemy coalitions, and this coalition is going to 
outlast ISIS's efforts. I do think they're going to take the city center. Um, I think one of the challenges that we're going to face is that there are neighborhoods in Mosul from which AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, ISIS's predecessor, was likely never cleared. So the clearing operation for the full extent of the city is uh, a measure of success beyond taking the government buildings and the base back. ISIS's defensives have been formed in rings. Um, when forces began to approach Mosul on the south, the east, and the north of the city, they ran into some defenses. On some axes, 95 V-bids. So uh, one of the measures of success in uh, defeating ISIS's defenses is to uh, interdict, let's say, 90% of those VBIDs. But one of the challenges is that that still means that 10 VBIDs get through. Those are very elaborate car bombs that inflict a lot of damage, uh, killing a number of the forces that are on advance. So the, the casualties for uh, coalition forces on the advance are still very high uh, because the volume of ISIS's defensive measures are intense. ISIS has blocked roads, we're uncovering tunnels, the momentum of the offensive is very impressive despite these obstacles. I do expect that ISIS is also expert in urban warfare and that they have also prepared the city uh, for, to be a very long and protracted fight. Uh, but I also agree that um, while their defenses are excellent, um, the offensive is better. Uh, and Mosul will be cleared, but there will, of course, be challenges, not only around Nineveh, where other spoilers such as Irani Bakshi militias, Asaibul Haq, are trying to take uh, key terrains such as Talafer on the west side of Mosul, which can induce a number of uh, sectarian and ethnic challenges, not only at a local level, but at a regional one. Um, but also ISIS's counteroffensive measures that are occurring elsewhere in Iraq. ISIS led a counteroffensive in Kirkuk, in Sinjar, in Rutba. ISIS is still executing its standard explosives campaign inside of Baghdad. There have been anomalous attacks, uh, not only in uh, the vicinity of Tikrit, but in Diyala over the course of the preceding month. So there are places throughout ISIS's depth within Iraq where I expect we will see ISIS try to divert attention and try to achieve some gains that not only counteract the tactical and operational advances towards Mosul, but the message that the coalition is going to achieve durable gains. Yeah, and Howard, I think this is a good place for you to uh, you know jump into the conversation here because you know Jessica brought up ISIS's predecessor organization, <laughs> and I think for most people in this room, it's not a secret that we've seen this movie before: a building offensive from Mosul against a protracted insurgency based inside the city and efforts to clear it. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the origins of this particular threat, the Islamic State, its bureaucratic structures in this area, and why you know? You know, uh, why Nainoa in particular is such an interesting case study about uh, the, the group itself and its, and its predecessors. Sure. Uh, the Islamic State grew out originally of a group, uh, uh, Jamaat Tawhid al-Jihad, founded by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi from Jordan. Uh, Zarqawi moved into Iraq before the United States led an international coalition invading Iraq. And then he formed uh, a group that in 2004 swore allegiance to al-Qaeda. And they became known in English as al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, now, if we go back to the 2004-2006 period, the center of their power was really Anbar province. And even there, they had already organized into an effective bureaucracy. Uh, the bureaucracy was, was built on the model of al-Qaeda. But then it was uh, changed a bit 
to really be designed to take and hold territory. So what we saw in Anbar in, in 2004 to 2006 was the province was divided into six uh, Al-Qaeda and Iraq sectors. Each of those sectors had uh, a leader and a mir, had a, a well-defined bureaucracy, uh, an administrative emir, a, uh, a military emir, other positions like that. And there was coordination between the center and the different sectors. So the sectors would raise money and send money up to the center, the headquarters of Anbar province. Anbar province would reallocate that money and send it down. Each of the sectors was <coughs> fundraising on its own and had operational autonomy. Now, even at that period, the Anbar province was sending money up to, to the Iraq level. All right. So 2006, uh, uh, Zarqawi was, was killed and two new leaders took over, Abu Ayyab al-Masri and uh, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. And just to give you a sense, we're going to be talking about Iraq after ISIS and Syria after ISIS. I mean, we're looking forward, so there's great uncertainty. So just to give you a sense, in 2006, 2007, 2008, what was the uncertainty? The big uncertainty was we didn't even know if Abu Omar al-Baghdadi existed and who was in charge. It was assumed that Abu Ayyab al-Masri was in charge. But we have the, the surge. The surge started late 06. Actually, the, the actual surge started 2007. But the Sahwa, the, 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 uh, the uprising, the pushback by the Sunni forces in Anbar started in 2006. And we then see the violence migrating through Iraq. Anbar, uh, the peak of violence was around October 2006. Uh, it goes to Diyala and Salah and the peak of violence there is, is sometime in, in June 2007. And it migrates finally up to Mosul, which is a key node for bringing foreign fighters in and for raising money. And the peak of combat violence in Mosul was, was uh, early 2008, I believe. Right. So, so that's the first element of the importance of Mosul. The second part of the importance of Mosul was in the 2008-2010 period, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq renamed Islamic State of Iraq uh, in 2006, uh, never went away. So they had sleeper cells all around the country. And there was, again, the same kind of financing that I talked about. The local areas would send their money up to Mosul, send 20% up. Mosul would reallocate. Right? And at that time, 2008 certainly, uh, Mosul and the, the desert areas south of Mosul, the Jazeera, were the only net plus areas in terms of fundraising. So very important in terms of fundraising. Where did that fundraising come from? It came from uh, 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 skimming contracts, reconstruction contracts, which to fast forward is something we should be concerned about going on. It came from shaking down a cell phone company. Uh, it came from oil sales, all the things we see today. Uh, so, so the other thing is that we knew that some of the leadership had sought refuge in the desert areas south of Mosul. Right? So they had cells in the cities, and then leadership was, was somewhat off the grid, both in terms of their records uh, and in terms of location. The other element, when I said that there were uh, sleeper cells all over, is when we look at the financial reallocations, we have a point in time. We have uh, money coming up from Anbar, from Baghdad, from, from Salahuddin, from Diyala. We have money going out to those same places, money going 
down to Basra, and to this day, I don't know whether there was a cell in Basra or whether this was money going to Buka prison, the big prison camp uh, in, in Basra governor. And we have money going into Syria. So that's another thing to take account of is this was, even at the time, a multinational group, uh, rest and relaxation in Syria, uh, uh, fighters coming in through Syria. So, uh, so that's where Mosul sits in, uh, in kind of the, the importance for this group, and that hasn't really changed. Yeah, and it's something that you all touched on sort of indirectly, and, I, and, I, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll bring it up here, is it's the battle for the city itself you know, seems from a military standpoint relatively straightforward, and people you talk to say it's, it's hard to defend. But the difficult part will be the road that leads out, you know, the one that leads through, um, I mean, I guess, out into Syria. And so can you, uh, and this is also where you run into some of those problems, I, I, I think, that you, that you were alluding to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my finger on it. So let's open it up to all three. So what are the problems you see, particularly around Talafa? You both brought it up. Um, uh, and the importance to that road, uh, maybe historically for the Islamic State. Howard, if you want to jump in at, at the end, and all three can address. It's, I mean, it's a good, a good way to start to talk about the, the bad things happening in Mosul. I remember back when uh, uh, the uh, offensive in Fallujah was taking place, uh, I was saying that uh, Mosul is going to be uh, a, pro uh, a much bigger problem, not because uh, it's a big city, not because it's a military challenge, but also because it's a political, uh, it's a it's a political flashpoint. It's a potential political flashpoint. At the time, uh, many people were saying no, uh, Mosul is going to be actually easier than uh, Fallujah because, uh, for a long time, Fallujah was a problem for Iraq, uh, whether during the uh, Saddam Hussein regime or during the uh, when the American uh, Americans were there. Uh, they, they resisted uh, any political order in Baghdad. They didn't want to be dominated and, and so on and so forth. But, but, but Mosul uh, is a problem for, uh, for many reasons. One is that, uh, and I think we've reached a point in the fight against ISIS in both Iraq and Syria, and we're going to get into Syria in a, in a little bit, uh, where uh, politics matters more than the military challenge against ISIS. And Mosul is, is a perfect example because there are so many uh, Take, uh, so many uh, stakeholders are involved in, uh, in, uh, in Mosul. Uh, many people want a piece of the pie uh, in Mosul. Unlike Fallujah, Fallujah was a military challenge, probably also a political challenge, but was more of a political challenge than a military one. Uh, it was up to the Iraqi government and the Americans to sort out what's the best formula in Fallujah. But in Mosul, it's not up to the Iraqi government, it's not up to the Americans to sort out uh, what's, what's best there. There are the Kurds involved there, there are uh, different Kurds uh, involved involved uh, in, in there, uh, the, 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 the KRG, uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, region government, uh, is, uh, doesn't have the uh, support of everyone inside Kurdistan to back uh, uh, certain political uh, agendas uh, in Mosul. Uh, for example, the, uh, you know, uh, you're an expert on this, the Turkish involvement inside Iraq uh, is, is, a perfect, is, is a good example because while uh, President Barzani supported the involvement in one way or another, uh, other political uh, op oppositionists within Kurdistan opposed it. Uh, and you have also the PKK 
is, a, is a major uh, concern for uh, Turkey uh, near uh, Tel Afar. Uh, someone mentioned uh, Tel Afar is a, is a very uh, problematic area, and it's going to be a big flashpoint. It's west of uh, uh, west of uh, northwest of uh, Mosul. Uh, it's a Turkmen-dominated area. Uh, Turkey uh, said that uh, the Shia militia should not be there, but really the, the Turks are also in, uh, more probably more concerned about the PKK rise in Sinjar near uh, near Tel Afar. So uh, Mosul is really uh, is uh, I think uh, the Americans stitched some some of these fault lines for now, and things are going very well for now. But I think uh, uh, ISIS uh, will try to uh, destroy the current strategy, which is actually uh, very promising, uh, by, uh, uh, by trying to uh, fight in uh, Mosul for, say, four months. And if it does that, I think many of these alliances will collapse. There, were, there are already signs of tension between different factions fighting outside uh, Mosul. And I think these tensions will increase will intensify, and we will see in, in a few months that uh, the situation on the ground is going to be completely different. I think ISIS will be able to hold on to the city for uh, quite a while. Uh, I think uh, there, was, there has been a lot of uh, wishful thinking about uh, the city collapsing somehow, the, uh, that uh, ISIS members will choose to go to Raqqa. That's why we have confused reporting uh, coming from, uh, you know, out of uh, Washington. Some say uh, fighters coming from Raqqa into Mosul, and some say uh, uh, fighters are actually moving from Mosul outside. So the, these fault lines are ethnic, uh, sectarian, uh, geopolitical, and uh, and I think this will uh, will uh, will emerge and become uh, even more intense uh, uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. Anything to pick up on there, Jessica? Just to agree that uh, the longer the battle for Mosul goes, the more vulnerable the coalition will become. Uh, the broader the operation becomes with follow-on operations, for example, in Talafar, or supporting operations in the Zab, the more diffuse the operation will become as well, which also leaves room for coalition members to become delinked. Uh, the road from Mosul to Talafar to Sinjar to Syria uh, is perhaps more important for members of the coalition who have disparate interests in those places than it is for ISIS tactically. The Jazeera Desert that is beneath that road to the south and southwest of Mosul is traversable. We are, of course, entering the winter season, which makes it slightly less so, but it, the winter season also makes the biggest constraint upon ISIS's movement in the Jazeera, our air cover, uh, constrained from visibility as well. So there are ways for ISIS to escape this operation and reset elsewhere. Uh, but I would also say that ISIS has been preparing for the battle for Mosul for a very long time, and that its troop movements and preparation for the battle have probably already occurred. So we're going to see other responses from ISIS, as I mentioned before, elsewhere uh, in Iraq, where it has established positions already. If I may just add oh, uh, one other yeah, point, uh, and perhaps just to uh, mention it now, and we can discuss it more, um, perhaps during question and answer. Uh, there are other threats that stem from the grievances of Sunni Arabs in Nineveh and elsewhere in Iraq uh, that could also produce spoilers to the coalition um, if the grievances are not addressed, which they're not likely to be addressed quickly. Um, there are other elements who are seeking to be champions of Iraq's Sunni population. Uh, not only the 
uh, neo-Ba'athist organization, Jaysh Rajal Tariq al-Naqshbandiya, that was trying to capture the national Sunni protest movement before ISIS decided to come in and start controlling cities in 2014, uh, but also al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda in Syria, the affiliate Jabhat al-Nusra, which has reflagged itself as Jaysh Fatah al-Sham, uh, is already conducting outreach to tribes in Anbar. Al-Qaeda is going to make a play to become a silent vanguard of a Sunni insurgency in Iraq. And if the grievances are not addressed, the vulnerability will remain open. And in the vacuum of control by ISIS, you could see mobilization of Sunnis under a different flag. So to put that on the list of challenges that we need to make sure we're thinking about and facing. Anything to add, perhaps maybe the role, does is is it, is it fit into, as you mentioned in your, in your intro, about you know, both its economic and, economic important to the transnational movement of the group and maybe efforts of the coalition to, to attack that at the moment? Are they putting pressure on it? And can, do you see that as linked into the, into the broader struggle now uh, with, you know, with our current focus on Mosul? This is, you're talking about the Iraq-Syria link. The link. Yeah, so, um, so a couple things. So I think this is actually very important uh, to think about movement being being possible through the desert, through the Jazeera, because uh, we're going to see movement back and forth. We've seen. Let me uh, let me credit the citations, and I think as I talk, you should just assume that uh, I'm probably citing somewhere uh, Hassan and Jessica and Aaron without saying it. So we might end up, you know, kind of doing a circular citation at some point. Um, but uh, but I want to cite uh, very good work by by Iraq Oil Report now, which which is showing uh, Islamic State fighters leaving the city, going towards Syria. Uh, so uh, so stopping those routes, or at least being able to track those uh, fighters, is going to be important. The uh, Islamic State is is very cognizant of issues of air cover. Uh, uh, as far back as 2007, 2008, we have a uh, strategy document from them where they talked specifically of uh, what to do to, uh, in, of, of how effective coalition air forces were, uh, of how they were able to move soldiers, and what the, uh, what the group should do to stop air forces from seeing their operations. So they are, whatever they do, they're going to be quite cognizant of that. Um, those routes... So those routes have been historically important, moving people. The real first very strong evidence we had of how uh, predecessor groups moved their fighters were known as the Sinjar documents. This was a cache of documents discovered in Sinjar <coughs> describing, uh, detailing uh, the borders emirate and fighter flows in and out. Um, the other issue about this area, Tel Afar, uh, you know, I don't know how much symbolic importance it has now. Tel Afar was one of the first battlefields where the U.S. really tested and succeeded at a counterinsurgency fight against uh, ISIS. And Tel Afar is where many of the um, current Islamic state, some of the current Islamic state leaders come from. So, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a bit of a flashpoint. And uh, as as Hassan said, you know, and and Jessica said the. Shia PMUs coming in, right? They're very diverse. I don't want to characterize them as all one way or another. It's always a mistake to group uh, the PMUs as one as one mass. But how they uh, how they handle the civilians, how much of a fight uh, Islamic State decides to put up is is going to be very important. 
and just to pick up on some of my own work, my, my, my work focuses mainly on the Islamic State's network in Turkey. Um, and both Talafar and Sinjar and that road leading through, you know, we conceptualize it here, and in, in, in I think most people do, as the Turkish problem with ISIS emerged late because it was the primary transit route for foreign fighters that came in to the current conflict, and by that, beginning in, say, 2014. But if you look back historically and begin to document foreign fighter flows, obviously Syria was the main entry point into Iraq, but you had to get to Syria. And so one of the ways through was exactly the routes uh, that are now being leveraged, although less so which is to move through southeastern Turkey to smuggle yourself across the border and to go across. And so this brings us back into how you know, ISIS should not be thought of as sim simply, and it's a lot of Howard's work as well, and both Hassan and Jessica, as a sort of boots on the ground military force that can be beaten back, but it has these tentacles of bureaucracies that have outlasted or outlived significant pressure being put upon them, and they extend out into the region. And I think it's a good segue to you know, it's a, not just a battle in Mosul and Tel Afar on the road. You know, that road stops someplace. You know, and in this town in Washington, there's a lot of talk now of putting simultaneous pressure on the Islamic State. You know, so we have the pressure being put on, 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 on Mosul. And so the logical other endpoint to put pressure on them at the same point is to go after Raqqa. But a lot of, and I would say, whereas the coalition in Iraq is stitched together, and it's, it, I would say it's stitched together pretty well, the, the Syrian case provides a lot of, for now, for a Syrian case provides a lot of complications because the primary force poised to go are something we call here the Syrian Democratic Forces, let's say the majority of which are the, uh, they call themselves the Democratic Union Party, the PYD, who have a militia, the YPG, Kurdish Alphabet Soup, who are primarily Kurds, who are poised to go, uh, well, they, 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 there are suggestions that they could go, and this raises those same ethnic tensions that ISIS feeds on. Intra-Kurdish, intra-Arab, Arab-Kurdish tensions uh, at this other flashpoint now of Raqqa. It, uh, I mean, this is going to be uh, a big problem uh, in Raqqa. For, uh, for a long time, I think uh, it was recognized that uh, ISIS presence in Syria is much shallower than, uh, than the one in Iraq. There is a legacy in Iraq. There are, uh, there are alternatives in Syria uh, to ISIS, um, insurgent, Sunni insurgent groups. Um, that's why I think Raqqa is going to be, a, 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 that's going to be, a, a, I mean, the, the challenge in Raqqa is going to be different. It's not, a, again, it's not a military challenge. Uh, just like I said earlier, the, the challenge for, in the fight against ISIS today is, is really concentrated in the northern parts of both Iraq uh, and Syria. Uh, Raqqa, there is, uh, and I feel this uh, time and again here in, the, in Washington, they underestimate how, uh, how, uh, how much not hated, but uh, uh, feared and sus uh, suspected uh, their suspicion about uh, the Kurdish uh, force in, in, inside Syria uh, uh, when it comes to the Syrian rebels, to the local populations there. Uh, this is because uh, the, the, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and here we're talking really about the YPG uh, rather than the Arab components within the SDF. Uh, that they, uh, there's a perception that these are, uh, these guys are, uh, they want to dominate in northern Syria and they want to cleanse and de, uh, de uh, kind of populate some of the, uh, these areas to uh, put back some of the Kurdish uh, families that were displaced back in the 70s by the, by the Ba'ath party in Syria. Uh, 
So there is this fear uh, that th they have an agenda, and this agenda is uh, directly involved in the population uh, in there. There is, uh, I think, Washington politicians here under underplay that, and they they say, you know, let's deal with ISIS, let's expel ISIS from uh, Raqqa, and then we will deal with the political mess uh, afterwards. And we promise you that the Kurds will leave Raqqa; they're not going to stay in Raqqa. Uh, this is the, the the kind of the cliche here. And I, uh, for a long time, I think uh, until recently, until probably the past one month or two months, uh, there was a debate about really are there alternatives? Can we work with someone else other than the SDF? Uh, but recently, I think uh, because uh, the current administration is running out of time, they're, they're becoming more unequivocal about who's going to go there. They want the Kurds to go there. And this is, a, this is going to be a problem uh, because um, we know that if uh, Raqqa is retaken by the Kurds, uh, even if ISIS is expelled from, uh, from there, and there's a uh, good news in that uh, in and uh, of itself, uh, I think the sentiments, uh, the local sentiments, is going to be seized by Al-Qaeda uh, and other extremist forces who are local. Many, uh, many of them, many fighters who are fighting now in Aleppo, in Idlib, and even in southern Syria, who are affiliated to extremist forces, they were driven by ISIS from Raqqa, from Deir Zor, from Hasaka. These, these guys are going to go back. And the, the, uh, there is a concern about uh, uh, a void that they will exploit. And that void is going to be the Kurdish Arab uh, tension. Uh, I think that's a big, uh, big selling point for them. And they're already uh, kind of uh, uh, utilizing that to say the Kurds have uh, an agenda, a separatist agenda. And they, are, they have also an ethnic cleansing uh, agenda there. So I think Raqqa is going to be a problem in that sense. And I don't think there are Arab forces, on the other hand, who are capable of going into Raqqa. So there is a dilemma. Uh, do you delay Raqqa so much that ISIS will entrench itself there and delay its, uh, and, and kind of uh, uh, go past the momentum in Mosul? Or uh, you uh, rush into uh, Raqqa by sending these uh, YPG forces in there? Maybe you want to pick up on that dilemma, too, because I think that's an important thing to put your finger on is I think that there's a recognition that it's problematic ethnically and perhaps longer term politically, but there's an inherent desire to keep up the offensive because ISIS is, you have, you, from a political standpoint here and a military standpoint, you want to oust them as quickly as possible so they can't congregate and plan tax against the West. Wonderful. I'm going to quickly echo two of Hassan's points and then speak to that dilemma. Uh, the first, about the, uh, the Kurdish-Arab dynamic inside of Syria, uh, I want to give an example of how this has played out before. When the SDF, uh, in conjunction with our coalition, drove ISIS out of Shaddadi in 2015, that's a town that is sort of between Mosul and Raqqa, just on the Syrian side of the border, the Sunni Arab population in Shaddadi fled south into ISIS-held territory in Deir Ezzor province. That's how they felt about the idea of being liberated by a predominantly Kurdish force. That dynamic is still a vulnerability and a risk when it comes to the Raqqa operation. It's one of the reasons why the dilemma exists. On the other side, it is not only the concern about the lack of capacity of Turkish-backed opposition forces who also want to go to Raqqa largely to head off a Kurdish liberation operation, uh, but it's also the fact that al-Qaeda is a part of that coalition of opposition groups. So to have al-Qaeda-linked groups take Raqqa from ISIS 
is to enable Al-Qaeda. To me, the reason why the dilemma is becoming so complicated and so sharp inside Syria is because a lot of our options to deal with ISIS in the context of so many sectarian and ethnic uh, fault lines and seams that have played out so violently over the course of uh, these last years in Syria is the fact that our anti-ISIS policy does not address Al-Qaeda. So if it doesn't block Al-Qaeda, it enables Al-Qaeda, which leaves us in a dilemma. Howard, anything to add? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this dilemma and I'll try to double it. Uh, so so with, with Islamic State, it's always a good idea to take territory from them. And it's uh, always a good idea to do it right, however. Why is it a good idea to take territory from them? Because even though, uh, even though much of our focus on their fundraising is about oil, uh, current estimates uh, coming, coming mid-year from the US Treasury, which, which is our most credible source at this point, are that they're actually getting uh, higher levels of revenue from taxation uh, and extortion. And that takes place with population centers. So, you know, they have all manner of, of fines. Uh, you uh, would be fined for not having the right beard. You would be fined for wearing uh, your, your pants below your ankle. Um, you would be charged for a parking space. All this diversified ways to raise money. Uh, if you have a city like Raqqa, uh, 150 to 300,000 people, we don't have a current census. Uh, all of a sudden, those are people who can pay fines and fees and, and, uh, and help uh, the group raise money. Uh, so so you, you want to always reduce their territory. The, the uh, difficulty, as my colleague said, is, is who actually does that. And here I'm going to divide this into, into uh, two, two stages. Uh, one is who does the liberating, and then who does the holding. So two stages. Now, uh, you know, the, the Kurds, the, the YPG forces or the uh, SDF, so largely Kurds, some Arabs, are probably best placed militarily to do that liberating right now. That's the calculation of the coalition. Um, they're not the best placed, as, as uh, we've said, to do the holding because of, of ethnic issues. The other thing that makes it a little more complicated is uh, I think that the Syrian Kurds really have no interest in staying in Raqqa. Uh, it's not their historic territory. They weren't displaced from there. It's too far south. They do want to hold Kurdish territory. They've already deemed an autonomous administration. And so that, if they don't want to hold it, but they are the liberating force, that leads to the next question of what's, what's the bargain, right? What are they going to demand in turn, uh, or what can we the US and others force upon them to leave if we can push them to leave. And part of that bargain is going to have to be agreement with Turkey uh, and, uh, well, primarily, primarily with Turkey, who the, has the biggest concern about them. So, so there are going to be all these issues that enter into Raqqa liberation. Right, and I'll pick up here and, and, and add, um, you know, you had this Turkish intervention across the border, Operation Euphrates Shield, and it's and it succeeded in what I would call its primary primary objective, which was to push ISIS off of the border. And in doing so, uh, some of the things that we've been talking about indirectly, and I addressed um, uh, directly in my my previous comments, was it blocked, you know, it really blocked the foreign fighter 
entry points into Syria any longer. And so there are really no areas in which somebody wanting to join ISIS can get into uh, Syria any longer. Certainly there are ways they can get in, they can pay smuggling, but it's not anything like it was you know, when I was living there in 2013 uh, and, 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 and slightly after that. But it raises a whole other host of problems. So I'm going to double down on the problems, and I promise we will give the audience something ho um, uh, hopeful at the end before we turn to questions. Um, and that is, and it's like a flash, another flashpoint. Uh, it's, it's a town called Al-Bab, um, which now is ISIS held, but sits about 10 to 15 kilometers from regime territory, which is south. Uh, it's on either side of, of, of uh, the Kurds hold either side, and are any, anywhere from 15 to 25 kilometers, depending on the day. And then now you have Turkish-backed forces above it, about 20 kilometers. And so you, they can all can converge here. And so all of the threads of the of the disparate war inside of Syria can come together with any means of escalation. Turkey, Syria, Turkey, Russia, you know, presuming you know, it, it, that could be managed. But more importantly, on those ethnic cleavages that ISIS preys upon, you, know, you now have a race between Kurds and Turks, more or less, for a town that ISIS is now holding. And so I'm going to ask an extremely provocative question before we move to the positive and uplifting note of policy recommendations. And then before questions, the, the, the most important part of the, of, of the presentation. Al-Bab, I would argue, and I'm going to sound insane, ISIS is a stabilizing force at the moment. And so do we actually have an incentive to try and stave off the type of intra-ethnic insurgency that would come after ISIS by trying to focus on the political challenges of Raqqa first? It's a, it's a tough question because Al-Bab is a tough uh, territory. Uh, it's one of the areas where uh, some uh, locals uh, were involved in the jihad in Iraq. So there are some uh, routes uh, for ISIS uh, in, in the area. It's going to be much uh, tougher than elsewhere. Uh, we thought uh, Minbij is going uh, uh, to be tough, uh, and it was tough. It, it cost the Kurdish forces uh, one, of, one of the highest kind of casualty after uh, after Kobani, uh, Al-Bab is going to be a, a, a whole different level. Uh, and there is that, uh, you know, different forces at the outskirts and they want to go in or don't want to because I think some secretly want the regime to go into Al-Bab because, uh, you know, because that will save the Americans a lot of uh, blood and treasure and also will save uh, not, not American uh, blood, uh, blood but, uh, uh, for, forces backed by the, by the Americans. And Turkey, I would, uh, and this is, there's no evidence to this, but I can imagine the, the, Kur the Turks would like the regime to take uh, Al-Bab because that would, uh, that would be a buffer, a buffer between, uh, between, between the Kurds and uh, their uh, different cantons uh, in, uh, in Aleppo or in, uh, in Raqqa. Uh, so it's, I don't, uh, nobody has an answer to that. And I think the Syrian rebels do not have the capacity to go there. If the Kurds go there, it's going to cost them a lot of uh, blood and treasure as well. And distract from Raqqa. And distract from Raqqa. It's going to be a protracted uh, war. Uh, and it's, it's, a different, it's a difficult uh, terrain. Just the, the broader point that the, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the dynamics of the Syrian war uh, are independent of ISIS. ISIS drew strength from that conflict. So 
to me, your question about al-Bab is a microcosm of a bigger question, and that is, can you defeat ISIS while the Syrian war is still raging, which does, by all means, draw in uh, not just neighboring states, but regional states, and put them in conflict such that the movement of tactical engagements can stoke regional volatility. So it's a great question. Um, I would not wish to call ISIS a stabilizing force. So there was provocative. Uh, but I do think uh, that, I do also think that it is possible to design operations and campaigns with, it as a necessary condition that the hold force will neither be X or Y, it will be something else that will perpetuate a stable moment. Now, the hold force that has taken hold throughout many of the places that have been reclaimed from ISIS in Iraq um, have not necessarily uh, met that criterion. So the hold force is uh, perhaps the, the key element of the campaign such that getting to claim a victory tactically against ISIS, taking back a small town or a very large city, um, is going to stick uh, to the tune of ISIS not having a chance to come back. Yeah. You want to pick up on anything? I mean, even well, so here's, uh, this is great in diagnosing problems, but you know, if you can't treat the problems, you know, what point is it having everybody come here and listen to us speak? So you know, it's an immense challenge, and we talked a little bit about the, the inherent conflicts of needing to push them out of territory in order to decrease their revenue base, but also to disrupt their plots uh, potentially against the West. Uh, which is what we care about most here. Uh, and so how would you treat these two conflicts? What policy recommendations would you put in place uh, you know, for the next administration, whether it be Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? Iraq and Syria? Iraq and Syria. Easy. Uh, so, uh, and uh, I, I think I'll start from this, uh, like the, the segue, the, the previous one, because I think your, 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 your phrase, stabilizing force, uh, makes uh, sense. I don't think Syria is ready for the demise of ISIS yet. I don't think we should talk about the day after yet, because uh, there, there are two, uh, two things happening here. ISIS is a threat to the West uh, uh, in, in the way it's present in Syria and operates in Syria. That's, there's no question about that. So that, that's a consideration. Uh, do you keep ISIS as, a, as a, a, a governing body in Syria or not? And I think that has to be weighed against something else. And I think it's a very important one. If you expel ISIS today from Raqqa and, and elsewhere, it's going to open a new conflict in Syria. Uh, many low intensity but very dangerous. Uh, conflict in, in, in these areas. That's not to say keep ISIS, but also but to say that uh, the necessary forces that the, uh, unfortunately, Washington was not ready to engage and work with uh, the right forces to expel ISIS from Raqqa, from Deir ez-Zor, uh, from uh, eastern Aleppo. Uh, these forces are the only forces that are, if, uh, if they expel ISIS and if they're trained uh, well to fill the void, and I think this is a, a phrase that I, keep, uh, I will keep repeating, fill the void, because that's the only way, when we talk about ISIS the day after, filling the void is going to be the key, uh, uh, the key uh, factor for defeating ISIS. And I think in Syria, 
uh, you demolish ISIS in Raqqa and, and Derzor, there's going to be a massive vacuum. Who's going to fill that? The regime, the Kurds, the, uh, the Arab forces? The Arab forces who are the right forces there, not because we're sectarian, not because we hate, uh, somehow we hate the, the Kurds. I don't think, I think the Kurds should be supported in their areas, should be backed, should be supported, to, and, and, and Turkey should not uh, go after them if they operate in their, in their areas. Uh, also recognizing the other Kurdish forces that are legitimate actors in their areas, the, 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 the Kurds who are with the Syrian opposition, who are now expelled and not allowed to go to their areas by the YPG. Uh, so I think, uh, in that sense, I think uh, uh, the policy recommendation would be to really double down on uh, preparing the right forces, uh, Sunni, uh, Arab forces, and I'm not talking in a sectarian sense, but in a demographic, a demographic sense, local forces, who are uh, the, the, the people who would be welcome in Raqqa, would be welcome in Deir Zor, and would be welcome in Eastern Aleppo, some of the forces that Turkey uh, is now supporting. Uh, in Iraq, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a long story, because uh, for, for Iraq, there are causes, there, the, there are a few factors that make you optimistic about Iraq. I think the fact that uh, all, everyone is working together today to fight ISIS, uh, the fact that some Sunnis uh, are fed up with uh, ISIS and they've seen how ISIS ruled uh, their areas and governed their areas, They're, they don't want ISIS to go back to their areas, uh, so some of the Sunnis, not everyone. Uh, the fact that many Sunnis have been actually already working with, with the Iraqi government on low on a local level to build and rebuild uh, their territories, whether in Tikrit or in uh, Fallujah and elsewhere, there are still problems, but I think there are some uh, segments and some sectors of, of Sunnis are working there. Uh, some politicians are already involved with the Iraqi government. There are still problems with, the re with what the Iraqi government, uh, what Iraqis call rejectionists, people who reject the current system because they think it's inherently favorable to the Kurds and to the Shia. So they will always uh, oppose it, but they are a powerful force because they can be uh, effective disruptors to the political uh, situation in there. And I think, uh, according to the chief of the Hashd al-Shaabi, or the Popular Mobilization Forces, the chief himself went to Jordan and went to uh, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and he met with this rejectionist, uh, uh, what, what many call the Neo-Baathist. And uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. The National Coalition, which is a, a coalition of different Shia forces and uh, 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 Shia forces in Baghdad, they're also preparing an initiative to engage uh, the Sunnis. But I think it's a temporary thing. It's a, an opportunity. Uh, that's to uh, I want to conclude by saying that uh, Mosul presents a historic opportunity for Iraq to resolve and heal uh, the wounds. Uh, but I'm not optimistic about whether Iraq is capable of doing that. But there, are, there is an opportunity that if the U.S. is really serious about resolving the Iraq uh, problems, uh, they can do a lot uh, with time. Wonderful. Well, I think I have uh, two points. Uh, one, I alluded to already that there is a huge gap between the anti-ISIS strategy and our counterterrorism strategy, which is generally how we imagine we are containing the Al-Qaeda threat globally, and that gap is leaving a lot of room for the Al-Qaeda movement to resurge. Al-Qaeda and ISIS, despite their differences in the competition, are actually synergistic. When one makes gains, all the ships rise, and the Salafi Jihadi movement globally is doing very well right now and is poised to do better. So our policies really do need to reconfigure our approach to Al-Qaeda as we are dealing with ISIS. In Iraq, I very much agree that the 
the threats of a rejectionist movement uh, leave a lot of room for engagement politically. Um, I've been looking at provincial elections upcoming as potentially a, a, a way to engage, but there are some negative indicators uh, leading up to it uh, that there will be intra-SUNY competition uh, that could in fact uh, go the other way and produce some real uh, opportunities for mobilization against the state. Uh, in Onbar, I believe the uh, provincial council is trying to ask the governor right now, and I think I read that the Onbar uh, provincial court just put out an arrest warrant for Alberisha, who is the leader of the, of the Sahwa. So there are some big cleavages at, that are moving now. And so long as we are tracking them now and actually engage those issues now, um, I think we can uh, help Iraq stay on a path uh, to a positive future in the wake of ISIS controlling its cities. Uh, in Syria, I would uh, submit that the challenge is still very much that Al-Qaeda has penetrated and is uh, on a track to succeed in leading large portions of the opposition, and that that is a disincentive to engage them. But no matter how bad or how complicated that situation looks, uh, it can always get worse, and it is getting worse because we are admiring that problem rather than engaging it more aggressively than we are so we do actually have to defeat al-Qaeda in Syria in order to establish conditions uh, wherein neither ISIS nor al-Qaeda will uh, gain permanent, uh, not only sanctuary, but genuine control of populations and land. Great. Well, um, you know, Iraq and Syria are, of course, linked, but I think they can be delinked to a certain extent. I'll start with Iraq. And I think there's, there's grounds for, for hope in Iraq. Uh, let me... Uh, give some, some history of why we might have those grounds and then go policy implications going forward. First, uh, really consistently, uh, ever since 2003 and even today, most Iraqi Arabs want a unified Iraq and see themselves as Iraqis. Right? They may identify as, as Sunnis or Shia, but they identify as Iraqis. Now, what the form of that unified Iraq is, you know, a, a strongly federal Iraq versus uh, some kind of decentralized Iraq, that's up for grabs. But uh, number one, they, they view themselves as Iraqi. Second, in uh, 2010 or so, when we were preparing for U.S. withdrawal, the big concern, or a big concern, was the Kurdish Arab flashpoint. Well, it was a point, but it never flashed, right? There was, there was you know, small disagreements, but, but nothing terrible ever happened between the Kurds and the Arabs uh, in any of the disputed territories. The third historical grounds for, for where accommodation could be reached is if you think back uh, to, the, uh, to when, when Kurdistan region was, was on its rampage with independent oil contracts and it had the coup of, of, uh, six, of giving six different exploration blocks to Exxon, three of which were, uh, were in disputed territories, including in Nineveh governorate. Well, initially, um, uh, the Nineveh political class was just outraged and then within six months, maybe a year, certainly less than a year, somehow they reached accommodation. Now what happened, what Athiyam Jafi and, 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 and Kakmasud discussed behind closed doors, I don't know that I want to know, but, <laughs> but there was an accommodation reached. Uh, so, so now going forward, there's also actually one other grounds for hope, and this sounds a little counterintuitive, which is the collapse of Iraqi finances and oil prices. Historically, we see in oil countries that when they, when their budgets are destroyed, they institute good reforms. So the, the 
the poster child of that was Mexico in 1982 after the debt crisis. Because of that, we got an independent central bank. We got a move to outward-oriented economic policies, entry into the GATT. So Iraq is facing that issue now, and it's kind of under the, a little bit under the conservatorship of IMF and World Bank. And so there's going to be pressure on good government reforms. Now, there is a long way to go. Right. This is a government that from, from 2005 until 2014 you know, doubled its employment and doubled it again and probably added to ghost employees. And it's a government that even today uh, has done very little for real private sector development other than uh, saying that private sector development is important. But there have been some, some uh, reforms. So, 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 so that kind of, for policy implications in Iraq, that that says that the, the international community should remain certainly engaged in the governance aspect. This is not just a counterterrorism exercise. This is uh, a, an exercise of helping the Iraqis figure out the best constitutional arrangement, maybe mediating between communities, um, uh, helping with legal reform. Uh, and of course, naturally, all the different groups in Iraq will have to agree to those reforms. but. Uh, but there, there needs to be quite intensive engagement this time around. The second aspect, again, drawing on history and then looking forward, and now let me draw on uh, the terrific work by Craig Whiteside. We saw 2007 to 2013, the last time uh, uh, AQI and ISI were defeated, is uh, sleeper cells remained, and it was quite a specific strategy that they followed, which was, uh, clandestine infiltration, assassination of uh, Sahwa leaders first, and then of legitimate authorities, uh, police and army. And during that period, uh, there was actually very little assassination until 2010, 2011, very few attacks against coalition forces. We were the target. The target was to undermine the legitimate Iraqi government. So policy implication number two, again, this is not just a counterterrorism exercise. This is, this is policing. This is policing and politics. This is making the population feel confident that they will be protected by the government. This is creating a police force and security services that don't prey on the population and that are able to monitor criminal activity. In some ways, it's, a, it's a, an, an anti-mafia exercise at this point. So, so you know, uh, the police training, better police, better internal security, very important for the future of Iraq. So Iraq is, is uh, simple, I think was the word. Um, Syria, Syria, I, I tell you, is, is really hard for all the reasons we said. We have, you want to remove ISIS so they can't continue to raise money. And that's going to be, it's a mistake to talk about Mosul as being the last redoubt. We have the entire western Euphrates River Valley. We have Al-Qaim all the way to Deir Zor. We have oil fields there. Uh, lots of good revenue raising potential. Uh, so you want them out. Al-Qaeda is gaining strength. Uh, the rebranded, I don't know, they would claim they're not Al-Qaeda now, but I think we're all considering them to be still Al-Qaeda. They're gaining strength. And because the international community did not fully engage early on in training opposition forces, they've become an important part of those opposition forces. Uh, and the third element with Syria is, is I don't really think uh, that we settle the issue as long as Assad, certainly as long as Assad is in power, and then it's debatable whether we can settle this if his regime is still in power. 
That's, I'm not enough of a Siri expert to go that far. So, uh, so it, it's actually a very tough case. And so because it's a very tough case, the international coalition is doing what it's focusing on in its interest, which is counter-Islamic state, thinking about Raqqa. Uh, but that is going to breed further problems. Uh, and how we settle that, I, I don't have good ideas. And I'll add one more. I mean, before we turn it over to questions, is, is I don't think you can unlock a lot of the things in Syria on the ground independent of the regime while you still have Turks and Kurds shooting at each other. And so the interlocking on top of this, the Turkish-Kurdish you know, cleavage and, and, and insurgency as well, and how that bleeds over into Turkish actions inside of Syria, you can't unlock what would make sense to probably a lot of people on this panel to try and facilitate you know, on local ceasefires between Arabs and Kurds, intra-Arab, intra-Kurdish uh, cooperation on, say, you know, joint governing of, of, of areas in conflict, while the main backer of one side will prevent that. And so you need, as the United States, to try and <laughs> to, to expand the scope of your own responsibilities to try and take upon what is a strand and a thread, a very long and old thread of this conflict that has actually spilled over the border into Syria, which is the PKK, uh, Turkish government uh, fight that is actually raging at the moment. So um, on, that, uh, happy, uh, on that happy note, uh, and with those sort of easy policy recommendations to implement, um, we, it's about, we have about 25 minutes left. And I think it would be great if we can turn it over to uh, the, the audience here for questions. Um, with the caveat that I am the, the moderator and I will use the prerogative to, to try and limit the questions to one or two sentences and they actually end in a question mark. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that were said uh, about uh, you know, things that you're interested in, but you know, obviously we'd like to get as many as we can. Uh, so with that, uh, I open the floor and uh, yes, sir, right here. And maybe you can introduce yourself uh, uh, as well. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the uh, Atlantic Council. Uh, I, I'd like to compliment the panel for a very, very thorough and comprehensive uh, talk. Uh, my question is this. Could you comment on the casualties that all sides are taking that we know about, coalition, civilians, al-Qaeda, and uh, I should say the Islamic State, uh, and the command and control that's being used on the coalition side and the involvement of the United States? Because it seems to me that is very, very, very rickety. I don't have uh, good numbers on the casualties, but uh, Iraqi forces at one point a week and a half ago were complaining about a lack of airstrikes because they were taking so many. And the way that I've metabolized that is to recognize that when there were four and now five or six axes of advance on the city, that's a lot of firepower heading towards Mosul at the same time, coming into a lot of enemy contact with ISIS, and that that there are a lot of airstrikes being called in and most of them are getting covered and yet the casualties on the coalition side are still very high. Um, ISIS is also executing a lot of suicide operations so it is also taking a lot of casualties. Uh, I have not encountered that many uh, reports yet of troops in contact so these still look like explosive and uh, either mobile or static defenses that are being run into, and I would assume ISIS therefore in fallback positions, uh, but that ISIS is trying to move civilians as human shields and is executing those who resist. Among the people who are being executed who are resisting are retired Iraqi army officers. Uh, whenever I hear that phrase attached to Mosul, I think uh, Bathus Cadre, and I think about those who might be in a position to launch an armed resistance, not only to the state but to ISIS. Um, so. 
the civilian and retired military demographic inside of Mosul is, I would say, of the three, the one that is taking the most casualties. Uh, when it comes to C2 of the coalition, uh, I was skeptical about how well the C2 would come together, and it is performing very well. So I do think the operation of Mosul has been well designed, and that all parties that are participating have signed on to it. Uh, the spoilers are not, at this time, the Kurdish and Iraqi force uh, coalition elements or even the tribal forces within the PMUs fighting alongside Shia forces. Uh, it is the independent spin-off operations such as Talafer that could break apart the plan. Uh, in C2 for the audience? Oh, command and control. Who's designing and orchestrating and leading the thing? How about the American involvement? How do you see where we're engaged and who's in charge on our side? So the question is American involvement, who's engaged and who's in control on our side? Uh, well, Operation Inherent Resolve is the command I would point to. Um, there are uh, special forces missions, there are air component missions, and there are partner capacity building efforts. Um, all of them are engaged. Um, partner capacity building forces are uh, forward in a, uh, I think I'm tracking the lowest echelon would be a battalion level. Uh, so um, I can't necessarily speak to whether or not U.S. forces are actually on the axis of advance. I don't know. Uh, but we are uh, heavily integrated into the uh, indigenous forces who are actually the ground elements. Albert, anything to add? Uh, I just had a couple things on casualties. Uh, we should expect very high Islamic State casualties. Uh, historically, when we look at their rosters, they, they, uh, they continue to pay families of fighters who have been killed. And so we're able to identify from the rosters uh, how many are killed. Uh, we, we saw in Anbar in 2005, 2006, about a third of them had been, had been killed. Uh, we saw comparing Mosul rosters, Inawar rosters from 2007 and 2009 that even a higher proportion had been killed. And so they're, they're almost expendable to their leadership. We should, uh, we're also seeing casualties inside Mosul from resistance movements. Uh, being executed, and then we should expect some residual casualties because uh, ISIL has been uh, wiring cities as it leaves, uh, and so people people want to go home, and so they will even if they're told that they uh, shouldn't go home, they will go home. They will open a refrigerator or pick up an object, and uh, and and there will be an explosion. Uh, I haven't tracked at all uh, casualties on Iraq or or uh, other coalition. I, I can address one aspect outside of the uh, outside of the, the, the Iraq operation, which is Manbij, you know, which was you know largely a Kurdish uh, affair with American air power and, and special operations, uh, and that you know there were hundreds of Kurdish casualties there. I think the upwards about three hundred. The estimates are between three hundred and four hundred, uh, with 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 injuries uh, over well over a thousand. Uh, it's unknown how many the Islamic State took. You know they don't actually advertise this. Um, you know and. The documents that we could be used to track it will probably be out in the next 10 years, um, so we can look back and get a better sense. But it gives you a sense of, let's take Raqqa as sort of a model. Uh, uh, let's take Mambij as what Raqqa would look like, and this will not be an easy affair. And this will require a significant amount of, of YPG forces to do it, uh, and then willing to take uh, casualties as well, uh, to do it. And so when you get back to that sort of my policy recommendation, you have to solve Turkish-Kurdish grievances um, in addition to worry about the political tensions between Arab-Kurd, is how do you turn around and tell the YPG that you have to leave a town where you just, you just lost uh, a large amount of your people? 
Uh, and so it becomes politically problematic even if the YPG don't want to stay. They will put allies in there um, and then be try and control the city. Uh, and not without reason because of what we were asking them to do. So next question from the audience, if, sir, in the, in the back. Hello, Andrew Flynn with the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Um, you spoke, uh, you, you all speak spoke, up a little bit, sir? You all spoke on uh, the problems with having ISIS have actual ground control with taxation and funding their efforts, and also uh, problems with having foreign fighters have avenues to enter Syria through. But what about the foreign funding that's involved? What do we do after ISIS is routed and defeated, after ISIS is removed from their current positions, when they still have funding, do we, do we expect that as uh, the international community sees defeat, they'll lose funding uh, complicitly, or that there will still be a funded terrorist organization with serious capabilities? Howard, maybe you want to take it. And if I can ask you, after your answer, maybe expand upon how we can begin to train up local forces to do the things needed to, to counter ISIL finance. Sure. Um, so, so, so foreign financing is something that we really didn't, haven't had to worry about much because they historically and even today have not raised a lot of money from foreign donors. The, the, the Al-Qaeda model, the, the, the wealthy Gulf Arabs uh, funneling money to Afghanistan and then to Pakistan doesn't really apply to Islamic State. Uh, now let me again refer to documents. What we saw uh, in, uh, I'll go three different periods. I'll start with uh, Anbar, 2005, 2006. Uh, they're very meticulous at recording in their ledgers where their revenues come from. Approximately 5% of their revenues were marked as donations. And that didn't differentiate between foreign and domestic. So we assume those were mostly domestic. Uh, if we look at their ledgers from Mosul, the peak of their, uh, the second peak of their power in Iraq and their headquarters in 2008, 2009, we get about the same proportion from donations, certainly less. And then if we uh, fast forward to the Islamic State, uh, 2014 to the present, we can break down their sources of revenues into money they held from banks in territories they captured, uh, that was the largest single injection. And then oil revenues, that's local. Uh, and that's from, that's originally from smuggling out through Turkey and we think uh, Kurdistan, but that stopped early on. And so most of their oil revenues have since come from internal sales in their own market and also uh, collusion with the Assad regime uh, exchanges. Uh, so oil revenues and then taxation and extortion and then much smaller amounts uh, kidnap for ransom and a sale of archaeological artifacts. Uh, now they did get money from overseas. Fighters would bring money and there were other scams they would use but, but really compared to the bulk of their revenues, very small. So one of, the, um, one of the questions that's been raised as we kind of think about what is the future of Islamic State look like after it's ejected from Mosul, Raqqa, Derazor, so on, is does it then turn to foreign funders? Uh, it could always be wrong, right? Because it's the future, can't predict the future. But, but baked into their doctrine is don't raise money from foreign, uh, foreign governments because they'll tend to control you. Uh, so my guess is that we still won't have to worry that much about foreign governments. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I mean, it's thinking from a purely uh, kind of very cynical view, I think it is in the interests of the Gulf countries and other potential donors to make sure that 
whoever is donating money isn't donating to Islamic State. I mean, overtly, they are members of the counter ISIL finance group, which is a multinational uh, group that looks at ISIL fin uh, 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 Islamic State finances. Uh, it's very hard to for them to justify support for Islamic State. It's easier for them to justify support to Al Qaeda. They can always say Al Qaeda is 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 a, is or Jabhat uh, Jabhat Fatah al Sham is no longer part of Al Qaeda. It's a legitimate part of the anti-Assad coalition, and we support that. I mean, they could you could see them saying that. It's much harder to see them not cooperating in the counter ISIL uh, fight. So I don't think we'll have a problem with foreign donations in a large scale. I just want to agree on that. Uh, and I th uh, even Al Qaeda, even uh, Jabhat Fatah Sham in Syria, resist uh, foreign foreign support. Uh, they would say, uh, "Look, I'm not going to look. You can put it in my pocket, but I'm not. I'm not going to take funding from outside because they are. They worry a lot about infiltration, about people uh, within uh, Jabhat Fatah Sham or uh, or other groups that would be influenced by the donors and be uh, steered by by the donors." Sorry. I, I agree. ISIS is even more extreme on that. They do a lot of vetting uh, uh, for, for people even within their organization that, ha that, they, uh, that have uh, uh, deep pockets. Just speaking from the Turkish perspective because of the transit border route, the, one of the successes of the coalition that doesn't get mentioned a lot because a lot of us follow the military day to day has been the counter-financing uh, right. counter task force. And so some things that you see in Turkey, in addition to the border being cut off with Euphrates Shield, and even before that, uh, subsequent efforts to put uh, to um, uh, to block the border, was efforts to try and control the establishment of local bank accounts along the border to prevent, say, somebody who was in, not the who who a fighter to then transfer money to a local bank account to then get that bank account, get it out of the money, and as they go across the Islamic State takes everything from them, and so it was another potential source of revenue as well. And so it's one of the, the things in the coalition that doesn't get a lot of credit, but the counter, uh, the, the counter financing uh, task force within it is, is, is quite important. Uh, sir, right here in the front. Uh, thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz from Inside Iraq. Uh, great panel. Uh, I heard Hassan Hassan talk about on schedule, and you know, we've heard other um, government officials here in the U.S. talk about on schedule. And then later you talked about fighting for four months, if I got that right. My question is, on schedule, that assumes that there is a schedule from beginning to end. So what would be the schedule for planting the flag in Mosul? I mean, I'm just curious. You know, people, we keep hearing in the press it's yeah. we're going on time. So what's it going to look like? And uh, for, for uh, Jessica Lewis, you mentioned Shedari. I'm just curious. What happened after? I mean, they fled, but that was 2015. The population fled south. That was 2015. What happened later? I mean, is it still empty? Did they come back? If anything, because that might shed light into you know how it might play in, in other places. Thank you. Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, th this is what the Iraqis and Americans are saying. They are on schedule. They, uh, it's been a little bit, I think, two or three days, uh, uh, more than two uh, weeks. Uh, into the fighting, and they, I think they, uh, it's been, uh, uh, you know, the Americans were saying uh, they, uh, they, uh, most of the forces did their job uh, on, on schedule, meaning the, the Peshmerga has reached the eastern frontier and cleared some of the important areas. Uh, the counterterrorism uh, force, for example, was expected to have really difficult terrain along the southern uh, frontier. Uh, 
uh, but they've done a great job uh, in, uh, in, that, in that area. Uh, for example, Shura was supposed to be a very difficult, tough uh, fight, but they took it, I think, a couple of days. They had a pause uh, for a day or two, but they, uh, but they, they, they reached there. Uh, the, the problem is, and this, is, uh, uh, this relates to the problem of the casualties. I think there's a problem, there's a point to be made about transparency. Uh, and the U.S. obviously and the Iraqis want to, s to show that this is a very clean fight and they want to go in, uh, in there uh, as smoothly as possible and they want to control some of the reporting. Uh, not in the sense that they, pr but they, uh, they, uh, they, uh, uh, they uh, utilize the fact that the reporters cannot go uh, so far uh, into, into the uh, front lines. So I think there is, uh, there's that problem uh, that once they reach the center of Mosul or they say they reach the center of Mosul and they try to uh, de-escalate or reduce the coverage, the media coverage in that area and, and it seems like Mosul is going very well, I think that's a problem because the, we, we always have to be attentive to the local dynamics and what's, what's happening inside, whether people are agitated by the forces uh, coming into Mosul or they are welcoming the forces because we've seen a lot of disinformation uh, throughout uh, the fight. We, I always don't pay attention to the numbers because I, I think the U.S. exaggerates the numbers. Uh, the uh, ISIS also does exagger exaggerate the numbers from the other side. Uh, there is a lot of disinformation. A lot of the reporting, uh, I, I could start a website just uh, fact-checking the reporting about ISIS. There's, uh, there's so much already uh, happened. There's rebellion within Mosul that never happened. That's just a lie because that's not how uh, ISIS works. And also some of the reporting echoes some other reporting two years ago. So it seems like it's taken from one page somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think always take, a, uh, take this, report, this reporting with a, with a pinch of uh, salt. But I think so far, so good. My answer is actually fairly short. It's a wonderful question, what's happened in Shadadi over the course of the last year. And I actually haven't looked. But for exactly the reason that you framed, that it could tell us about how the situation will play out a year later, uh, I'm going to go do so, and I would be happy to share with you my findings. <laughs> anything to add on Shadadi? I don't have the answer to that either. Does anybody have a question? With a, uh, I saw your hand shoot up in the back, in the back corner. In the back corner, but behind the column. There you go. Just caught my eye. Um. Hi, my name is uh, Mohammed Ramon, and I am with the Arab American Institute. Uh, my question is, um, currently there is uh, a record uh, of about 64 million refugees worldwide with a significant portion coming from Syria and Iraq. How should the international community support Iraq and Syria and neighboring states, including Lebanon and Jordan, um, in, dealing, uh, in achieving stability uh, with the high number of refugees uh, after ISIS is defeated? Great question. Does anybody have uh, thoughts on the refugee issue? Um, I'll, I'll go ahead. This is a, that's a great question. It's a very difficult question. Um, let me throw out some ideas. I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's one coherent answer. Uh, there's been an enormous, so let's start going stages from, from kind of immediate assistance to longer range. Uh, immediate assistance, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on on Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, especially the main receiving countries, uh, and it's and you know they didn't ask for this burden. They happen to be in the neighborhood and they receive the burden. So, for the immediate, I think uh, international assistance 
in terms of shelter, food, uh, especially uh, uh, schools, education for children uh, is merited. And I don't think that that international assistance has been at the level that it should be. Uh, and we can, we can be very cold and say, well, you know, the adults, uh, it's kind of too bad what happened to them. But we have a, an entire generation of, of young Middle Easterners who, who could be the, the doctors, engineers, and artists of tomorrow and are instead the refugees of today with a very uncertain tomorrow. So, so that's the immediate issue. Second, I'm going to assume, based on, on fact, that most refugees want to go home. Uh, but, but we also know that refugees tend to stay refugees for much longer than they think they will. So now we face a difficult issue, which is that uh, uh, do we try to help Jordan and Lebanon and, and Turkey uh, integrate those refugees, kind of give them, make sure they have work permits, allow them to fully take part in society? That would be very good for the refugees. It could be in the long run, or even medium run, good for those economies uh, because they have more workers, especially young people, so it could be good for growth, but at the same time you have cultural issues and, and social issues. And so that kind of is one decision point we have to consider. Uh, if we don't uh, help them integrate, uh, then the question is where do they go? Well, Europe has decided it's had enough, at least it's had enough this quickly, uh, and, and the United States is slowly taking the Middle Eastern refugees, we take other refugees, uh, so that kind of is a, is a dilemma. The only, the only other option for them is to speed uh, to bring stability and security back to their home regions. And so that kind of, that is, that is somewhat happening in Iraq. That goes back to the policy implications that I said in Iraq, right? Better governance, uh, uh, reconstruction, uh, IDPs and refugees, most of them will tend to go back if they haven't been away for too long. Uh, Syria. I think if you want to put it in those humanitarian terms, we have a very strong argument for, for uh, uh, greater international involvement uh, in, the, in the war to the extent that it can bring stability to parts of Syria. It's going to be very hard to, to put Syria back together. Uh, so the question is, are there areas that we can stabilize in Syria? Uh, more cooperation with, uh, with Arab forces Arab opposition forces, uh, more cooperation with uh, the Kurds that we can stabilize that people would want to go back to. Uh, and so I think, I mean, that's, that's way above all of our pay grades, I think. Uh, but those are the dilemmas that governments have to look at with them. So I just talked about that Middle Eastern refugees. I didn't talk about the other uh, uh, 50 million. Is it 10 million displaced from Syria, 3 to 4 million displaced in Iraq? That's, that, that's enough to deal with for now. Yeah. Just add something quickly. Uh, this seems to be a very interesting week in terms of refocusing that question of refugees, particularly from Syria. Uh, I want to point to two items. One, that I believe Lebanon has new political leadership this week, and the, uh, uh, the feeling about Syrian refugees is quite contrary to the very constructive argument that you just made about options that could be pursued to their benefit. Uh, within their adopted countries. Um, I think uh, Lebanon is uh, very much uh, headed in uh, a direction right now that uh, could uh, make that problem more acute. So I'm refocusing right now actually upon 
uh, regional hubs where refugees are collecting and less upon Europe, which I had been focusing in recent months. Uh, the other place where I would point is actually Morocco. Morocco is having a weird protest movement right now that I think also speaks to the fact that one of the original arteries for Syrian refugees escaping was actually to Algeria and from Algeria where they couldn't stay on their visas from Syria, which were generally easy to get, they just went to Morocco. So those are two places where the refugee issue that has sort of been uh, stable is becoming unstable and I therefore just want to highlight that there can potentially be uh, more than just a broad brush uh, statement about how to help them, though I very much agree getting them back to uh, a, a, a vital position in their home countries is the ideal. Um, I think in the immediate term, we actually are going to have to deal with some places we haven't been talking about lately. Um, and I think with, with the final question, I know you've been very patient, and then we can begin to wrap up because we have about five minutes left. Okay, so the, the final question from uh, this woman right here. Thank you. Um, so my question is about Al-Qaeda's movements. Um, traditionally, Zawahiri and his predecessor, bin Laden, were mostly focused on the establishment of a state, a caliphate, as a distant promise, a unifying force for Al-Qaeda's ultimate goal, which was some kind of globalized insurgency movement. So given a recent movement in Syria, is that changing? Is Al-Qaeda trying to become more of a sort of Zarqawi model of sort of state presence, um, ethno-sectarian conflicts. Um, how is the, like, what are Al-Qaeda's ultimate goals in the Syrian conflict? As I said, we have about four minutes, so we'll, and maybe we'll, and I'll wrap up. So. I, I, I think Jafar Fath Hasham in Syria, uh, so they abandoned Al-Qaeda name, at least in public. Uh, they, uh, still, uh, uh, they still have the philosophy of Al-Qaeda, the original one which is that uh, their mission is to popularize the, uh, popularize the idea of jihad. Uh, you need to make normalize and embed within the community and, and encourage people to join jihad rather than enforce some sort of uh, uh, governing body on them. So it has, they, they rely a lot, they, they, uh, uh, they uh, focus a lot on, on consensus. Uh, unlike Al-Qaeda, um, uh, sorry, unlike uh, ISIS and uh, Zarqawi. Although the idea of a, of a state um, and how uh, the Zarqawist uh, pursued it in Iraq actually goes back to a letter given, uh, sent by Abu Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri to uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in 2006 when he congratulated him on the formation of uh, the Mujahideen Shura Council, which was an Al-Qaeda uh, group uh, joining uh, other Iraqi forces to, to, to look more Iraqi. And he said uh, the steps should be to uh, establish a state in the Sunni areas in Iraq, and that could develop into a caliphate, and then you uh, expand the jihadi wave, in his words, into secular uh, countries around uh, the region, and then after that, confrontation with Israel. So the four steps uh, that uh, Zawahiri uh, uh, pursued, or oh, sorry, uh, laid out, were, uh, were pursued by ISIS. Uh, so I think Jabhat al-Nusra still uh, is a hybrid between, between the two, that they want to establish some sort of governing body, but they don't want to establish a state yet. I think just uh, adding two points. Uh, first, it is interesting to me that Zawahiri has lately put out a statement directed at members of ISIS who might cleave towards al-Qaeda as ISIS loses strength, that Zarqawi was fabulous. It was a very pro-Zarqawi message. Uh, really capturing the idea that Iraqis can be part of Al-Qaeda again. 
Uh, so just to, to juxtapose those two uh, in relationship, uh, that is how Zawahiri is handling the legacy of Zarqawi now, that playing upon the fact that he had been a part of Al-Qaeda's movement. Uh, the other, just reinforcing, uh, Al-Qaeda does not imagine itself to be the governing entity. It imagines itself to be the silent vanguard. But its affiliates, by another name, can be governing entities. Right. So it would be consistent with Zawahiri's current program for an, an affiliate that doesn't bear the Al-Qaeda name to govern. And I do think that's ultimately the direction in which Jesh right. al-Sham will head. So I think with that, we ended right on time so everybody can get back to, uh, get back to work today, including us. So I want to thank the panelists. Uh, please join me in thanking them. And thank you, everybody, for attending. Thank you.